Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. Before we get started with this week's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners, and if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And today's guest, I've got John Amici. Uh, thanks for coming on, John. My pleasure. Uh, can you give a brief introduction to who you are and what you do for people that either don't know who you are or possibly <laughs> missed our earlier podcast I had when I had you on as a guest? Uh, my name's John Amici. I am a psychologist and a former uh, athlete. Uh, I am a research fellow at uh, University of East London. And I work with um, my own company and a number of psychologists on, um, well, on a suite of things, actually, trying to make sure that people's lives are as high performance as possible, either in work, uh, in school, in education, um, or in sport. So my organization does leadership training, uh, work around, you know, functional inclusion, helping people understand and uh, their own motiv- motivation and other people's, helping them see how um, being part of a team uh, can enhance your performance and how actually being on a team is not the same as just being with a group of people. Um, and then really importantly, um, we help people to realize how there are aspects of your well-being that you have to take care of if you want to be a high performer for the long term. You can't just burn yourself to a crisp and imagine you're going to be able to sustain that that pace. You've got to find ways to to relax, to recuperate, to rejuvenate in order to be great. Okay. And how how do you differentiate between a team environment and a group of individuals? In lots and lots and lots of ways. Uh, teams and groups are functionally different. Uh, we have a, a scale. Actually, you can see it on the board behind us, but. We have a scale of, um, of, of groups to teams. So it starts off with um, a self-directed indivi- individual. So essentially it's just a bunch of individuals who are doing the same thing or, or they are doing the same task uh, or they're doing complementary tasks, but they're not in any way connected legitimately. Then you move up to the idea of a nominal group, which is the idea that now the, 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 the group has actually got some interplay. Often in workplaces, people know about Gantt charts, the idea that you, uh, your task kind of ties onto the end of somebody else's task mm-hmm. and, then, uh, and you have to wait for something in order to continue. And, and that's like a nominal group where you just, you are connected because you're trying to do the same, reach the same goal. But if you were mountain climbers, you wouldn't be tethered to each other at this stage. And then it moves on up the list to a high-functioning group, a nominal team, and then the holy grail of an optimal team is what you're trying to get. And there's just um, – people have heard of gestalt, right, the idea that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. An optimal team is exactly that. It's where – it's not simply that that member A, member B, and member C add up to 100. It's that when you get member A, B, and C together – they have committed to each other. They have connected with each other. Uh, they have learned about each other in such a way that when they come together, it actually adds up to 110. Um, and that's, you know, in a nutshell, what, what we're trying to get for people, the experience of 
which is not just in terms of performance actually, but also in terms of enjoyment um, of being in a team environment, not just on a group. And what sort of strategies would you have to put, put kind of put in place to kind of get to that optimum kind of team environment? Um, it, it, I mean, to become a team, I think, is actually quite hard work because it requires an awful lot of things from you. Um, it requires that you be a little bit vulnerable. It requires that you um, that you see each other really clearly with all your faults, not just as a job description. Many people, perhaps listening to this, will be in a situation where they they essentially know the job descriptions of the people who matter to them in their workplace, but they aren't. They don't know anything else about them. They couldn't tell you if that person has more to offer outside of the fact that they are head of catering or in charge of something else. And teams dive deeper into each other, which requires a real commitment. Um, they, don't, they don't just see the surface. There, there are lots of other things. Teams have really frank conversations. Teams embrace conflict. Groups don't. Groups Groups do superficial conversation, often saying things that don't mean anything, um, uh, often doing things like um, avoiding conflict and thinking that an, an area without conflict is somehow good, um, whereas teams recognize that you need conflict in order to grow and develop. But there's, there's, a, there's a whole slew of things that differentiate the two, um, and it's hard work to, to create and maintain a team, but the benefits both in terms of personal enjoyment and personal performance and team performance are vast. Okay, that's quite interesting. And then coming to like the individual side of things, uh, I was listening to the, the video you recorded oh, probably a while ago, but it was on your, your Amici Performance Twitter page, and you talked about in the video about step theory. My question for that was, uh, how did it this theory come about for you personally and how can other people implement this into the real world <clears throat> i'm not i'm not sure how i'm not sure how it came about to be honest um like most things that that <coughs> excuse me like most things that i think of um it just i think it's probably a combination of the stuff that i read and just synthesizing it in my head um but what I would say is this, step theory is in two parts. The first part of step theory is the idea that everything we do, every decision, every interaction is a choice to move up the ladder or down. It's a choice to step towards progress or away from it. It's a choice to head towards success or slip back towards failure. Um, it is it is binary. It is good or bad. Um which is often oversimplified. I mean, I, I do recognize that that can seem very stark to people. But fundamentally, it's about a mindset of approaching every decision as if it is that. Um, and the second part of step theory is actually, I think, a little more important than the first. And that's the idea that the size of the step is not related to the size of the consequence. Right? So... The, the choice you make for good or for bad, you can't tell because it's a tiny choice towards success. If it's actually a tiny step, it might be a huge thing that it does. Um, you know, I, I read 
I read actually this morning about uh, a man who headed to work. Uh, a man slipped his car in uh, to a space before he got the space he was waiting for. And then when he wound his window down to complain to the man, the man screamed, you know, F off at him. Mm-hmm. And then ran into, the, into, into one of the nearby buildings. So he finds himself a car parking space and walks into work, sits down, and the first person to walk into his office is the man that just told him to wear fuck. So all of a sudden, the decision to try and cheat on a car parking space loses this man a job because he'd been there for an interview. So it just goes to show that sometimes a seemingly fleeting, ridiculous, pointless, meaningless interaction, which it could have been, right? It could have been one of those things that that he says he slips into the car parking space and even without the interaction, the rude words, maybe he stole the parking space and nobody ever gets to know about it. It could be near meaningless apart from just being one black mark in the mind of another man. But instead, that tiny decision, probably based on something positive in his mind, the idea that he doesn't want to be late for this interview, that tiny decision cost him a job. The size of the step is not always related to the size of the consequence. But does it come down to uh, people don't don't think of the ramifications of their actions? Well, I think most of the bad things that happen in this world come down to people not thinking about the ramifications of their actions. But step theory is a mindset. It's about adopting it as the way you operate. It's about knowing that. So for me personally, I struggle sometimes with the volume of people I meet to remember everybody's name. I do try, but I struggle because it's it's just a lot of people that I meet. So what I try and do is uh, I try my best to do that, knowing, and, and the reason for this is I know the impact it has when I see somebody and I remember them. And this is not to blow myself up, you know, this can be about teachers who remember kids' names, about managers who remember their employees' names. It doesn't really matter the context, but I know it's important. And I would not want to make someone feel like that they are forgettable because of you know, because of my own bad memory um, and because of the fact I meet a lot of people. So I think it's important. It's just a mindset. Just a mindset. What kind of techniques do you use to try and remember people's names then? Repetition. I mean, I would I would first admit, um, as I think every people you know when when they've got when they've got faults, they should admit this is not one area that I'm like super successful at. I meet a huge number of people. As much as I try and commit people to, to memory, um, I do have a tendency to meet people who say, "Oh, do you remember me?" And I'll say to them, the first thing I always say is, "When did we meet?" And they'll say, two years ago in Dallas." And I'm like, I'm sorry, I, I don't remember you meeting you two years ago in Dallas. But I do try and make it so if, if I'm somebody who's met you in the course of my work and I see you on a regular, reasonably regular basis, yeah. then I'll know you. Simply, the simplest thing to do is to, is to simply commit them, right? So when you talk to them, the first thing we do when somebody introduces themselves is try and think of something clever to say next. And in the process of trying to think of something clever to say next, you aren't you aren't thinking about them when they say hi. My name is. 
And so instead, I, I don't, I, when, I'm, when somebody introduces himself to me, I look at them, firstly, in the face, so I can see their face as I hear their name. And then I try and say their name back as I'm looking at their face, because then it connects their face with their name. And I often find, personally, that sometimes, even when I don't remember their name off the top of my head, if I see their face, it'll just pop into my head because that connection's been made. And then what I'm increasingly doing is making sure that if I leave a place and I'm not sure, <clears throat> I'll either say, I'm sorry, can you tell me your name again? And I'll do that same process one more time. Or I'll say, oh, it was Hussein, wasn't it? And they'll say either yes or no, which is to say, I'm really sorry, I want to get this. What is it? And then before I've gone, I've made sure I've just reset it. Because a lot of times, we all know by the time our handshake ends, we've forgotten what their name is. And that, you don't stand a chance in that environment. Well, it's back, once, well, once, once that, that time's gone, you can't really ask them down the line, well, what's your name again, is it? Because it's not very, like you say, it's, it's as if you've, got, you, you've put that person to insignificance. Yeah, I mean, it's embarrassing to do it, but I would say it's better to do it or to have somebody else do it than to not know. Um, and I've got, I've got colleagues that, that spend a lot of time with me when I go places. And if I don't know, I will make sure that, that we find out through another means so that they don't need to know that I haven't remembered. Because I, I think remembering people's names is a really, really important thing. Uh, you know, without our names, we become objects and, and nothing good ever happens when we treat people like objects. And then the next point I want to bring up is what what is the significance of mindfulness to you personally? Um, sanity. I mean, uh, I just I have a a wonderful, hectic, insane life, and um, and if I did not practice mindfulness, if I did not. If I couldn't enjoy the fact that I'm now quite good at grabbing spare moments, you know, 40 seconds on a tube, um, a minute between meetings, uh, five minutes at the end of the day, um, 30 seconds before I go to bed, before I go to sleep. These moments have made a massive difference to me. They mean that, that I can feel centered, uh, able to rejuvenate and relax. Um, it's just essential. If you, if you can't find a way to quiet your mind, it, 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 it burns out. It just chunners on in the background and distracts you from, from things that really require your focus. Um, I think it's, a, it's an essential leadership skill and it's, a, it's essential learning skill. Um, I wish I'd known more about it when I was in school. Really do. And what, what kind of strategies do you put in place now to kind of unwind? Um, I was going to say wine, but that's actually not true. <laughs> um, uh, it, it might have been true once, but I don't think it is anymore. Um, I enjoy ritual, right? So I, I enjoy, and, and not traditional ritual. I mean, I, I things like tea. I, I really enjoy tea. In my house, I will not drink tea that is not in a, is not come from my spode pot. Uh, and I won't drink it. 
if it's not in my spode cup. Um, I, I just enjoy that. And I've got lots of other different types of tea that I enjoy that have different teapots for those teas. And there is something about the, the ritual of that, that that is quite calming. Uh, but other than that, I just use basic mindfulness techniques to, to, to really relax quickly. I, I tell people all the time with some hubris, <coughs> excuse me, that I sleep in three breaths every night. And that's it just, it's awesome. It's incredible to know that however late it is, however early I got up, when I go to bed, I'm asleep. And I'm going to get the maximum amount of sleep I can get. I don't wake up in the middle of the night. It's just incredibly restful to be able to use mindfulness to, to clear your mind so you aren't haunted by your, the, the day's thoughts. Um, I, I think it's just it's, a, it's an essential skill for a hectic world. Well, I, I, I definitely agree to that, that sentiment. And how, how, how do you go about the, that technique of sleeping in free breaths? Is it like literally free, free breaths and then you, you're out? Yeah, no, it is quite literally. Oftentimes, not even three. I don't get to three. Um, so uh, I started off, it, it progresses, right? So it used to take about three sets of ten breaths. Really focusing on your breath and, 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 and initially starting off with a, with a body scan. Uh, you, you know that where you start the head and, or, or your feet and you go to the other end of your body, kind of just making sure that wherever you're focusing on, you're relaxing. Some people even use like a progressive relaxation, so they tighten their muscles in certain areas and then relax them, which really helps. And I started off with all that stuff, plus just the breathing, cycles of breathing, to really just focus on the breath and, and stop my mind from wondering or worrying about what's happened in the day. And then over time, I just managed to get it shorter and shorter. It was two sets of 10, then it was one set of 10, then it was a set of eight, and then a set of five, and now... It's not even three, really. I mean, if I'm totally honest, now I go to bed and my mind does some version of a body scan, progressive relaxation, and a breath, and I'm pretty much gone. And that's not because mindfulness makes you tired. It's because what keeps most people awake is an overactive mind. So is that for you that the gone in, well sleeping within three breaths is that your form of meditation then to just to... no no I, I mean I think meditation is 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 a, an extension of this so but meditation is not about sleeping meditation I think is something you do while you're fully aware you you sit and it's about really refocusing your attention on different things and if you're in a lovely quiet environment you can focus it on the environment. You know, I've sat in this, my office, where I'm sat right now, and I've listened to my lights, which make a very, very, very faint buzz that by no means can you hear under normal circumstances. Um, but it's absolutely there. I've listened to what it's like, the noise of my room when all my computers are on and the noise my room makes when there's no computers on. And by simply doing that, focusing my attention, it's teaching me how to do it, which is a really useful skill for a psycho psychologist, because it means that when I've got a client in front of me, no matter the distraction, I can totally focus my attention on them, on every part of them, 
on the little micro expressions they make when they talk, the way their eyes dart, their body language, even the tone of the words that they're saying and evaluate them in a way that I couldn't do if I was just generally paying attention. It's a really, it's a, it's a massively valuable skill for, for people who want to work with other people, whether they be HR, education, or leaders of, in business. So you definitely recommend to do meditation to be able to be better at your well, be better at your job then. Yeah, most certainly. There's no doubt about it. If you can, if you can find stillness, if you can refocus your attention at will, then you'll be better at your job, whatever it is. It doesn't matter if you are on the end of a uh, a machining line. Um, it doesn't matter if you you're, you're putting together widgets on a production line it doesn't matter if you're a, a high school teacher or a coach or an athlete if you can at will refocus every faculty of your attention then you're better at your job instantly because you notice more stuff and, this, and then this, this ties in quite well with your holistic growth approach that you've got on your website about individual development and obviously mental focus. Mm-hmm. Those, when when you say mental focus, would you say um, that mindfulness has a not not influenced it, but has an has put an impression on how you 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 kind of use your psychology type skills? Well, I mean, I I think that they're inseparable. Um, I, I simply have tried to take, make mindfulness a little more functional as, as a property because mindfulness itself doesn't have all the attached stuff to it. So it doesn't have to be about finger symbols and incense burning and sitting cross-legged and wearing a robe and uh, you know, it doesn't, or, or yoga. And, and it's not that any of these things or even all of those things is not that they're not valuable for people because I talked about earlier about ritual, how I enjoy ritual. Mine happens to be about tea, but other people's might be about yoga poses. Other people's might be about their special room where they've got a, a reed mat on the floor and they, they've got some candles and a, and a, you know, a statue of Buddha. Um, whatever, whatever their ritual is, that's fine. It's just that mindfulness itself doesn't require any of that. You know, I've done it with athletes right after, right after practice where we lie them down on the floor and have them use mindfulness as a uh, in visualization to use mindfulness in relaxing the body to use mindfulness into in rehearsal mental rehearsal which we know is as important as actual practice mentally rehearsing something is almost as good as actually physically practicing it um, and so for me it's about how how many ways can we use mindfulness to facilitate personal growth and high performance, and that—that's what I'm interested in. I've not thought of it in that way. The mental rehearsal of a task, because uh, so it—is it a case of well, mindfulness is nothing new, but it's been kind of rebranded to some extent. Yeah, I mean, one of my problems, I think, with it at the moment is that many, many people who are doing mindfulness are doing it as as a pseudo religion as a pseudo eastern practice and i 
whilst I fully respect some of the, the, the Eastern origins of mindfulness practice, the, the, the Buddhist, the Taoist, um, shamanistic practices, I suppose, for, in some extent, I, I just, I'm interested in how we can use it now. And, and I'm just aware that we, we do turn off a good percentage of the population if we require them to take part in a tradition that they don't embrace. Uh, not everybody who comes to my house is really intrigued by my practice of tea. And, and, uh, but it doesn't matter because it's mine. But if I'm doing something, if I'm using mindfulness in a, in, in a learning or workplace setting, I need it to be something that people can think, yeah, it's a bit kooky to start off with. It's a bit unusual. Yet at the same time, I can see how I can do this without feeling embarrassed about it. I can see how this is going to help my practice. There's nobody I've met who isn't, who doesn't want to learn about how to sleep in three breaths. There's nobody I've met. Because most people, 60% of the population, have trouble sleeping on a regular basis. They toss and turn. And there's not one of those people. But I know that if I came to them, and instead of how I teach this, which is very practical, very, very simple, I sat them down and said, well, first thing we need to do is get some candles. You're going to put on some whale, char whale music. We're going to get some charms in the corner. All of a sudden, there's a huge percentage of that 60% of people who really need to sleep better who would tell me, you know what? This is not for me. And I want them to know it's for them. So it's kind of... To open it up to a larger population, it would be obviously to make it more personal. And obviously you said about um, using, um, oh, I can't remember the word, but things that associate with yourself to get the better, better, yeah, the, best out of it. I, I, want them, I want them to see it as this is the wireframe. This is the, this is the, the mannequin of, of, of mindfulness. And you can dress it as you like. No, you know, now, very clearly, you can put so much stuff on this thing that you can no longer see the wireframe. You can no longer see the shape of what it was you learned. But you can still put some stuff on it so you can make it a bit more tailored for you, a bit more comfortable for you. So if I teach you this technique and you decide that what you'd like to do is add a music track to it, then go ahead, because I did that when I first started first started with a music track but then for me i'm in a different hotel room pretty much every week so if i had to set up my i you know my my phone to with this music to play just the one track and every night it just gets a bit cumbersome so i i realized very quickly i wanted to teach myself to sleep without that but if you want to add some music to your mindfulness mannequin have at it if you want to um if you want to burn a candle that smells of lavender, if you want to throw some, some I don't know, rosemary oil in your shower before you go to bed, any of these things, you can dress your mannequin how you like. Now, if you decide that, you know, you need to read some Taoist lyrics, um, some Taoist poetry or, 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 or some Buddhist sayings or... You need to sit cross-legged on a, on a reed mat instead of in bed. Then all of a sudden, you've added so much to the mannequin that I'm not sure if it's still helping you sleep or not. Um, but it's up to you. You know, it's up to the up to the people to to dress their mindset mannequin how how makes them most comfortable. 
without overdressing for the occasion. Well, that's that's quite an interesting point, John, that you you raised there, because you don't want to read too much into the situation, because then obviously, from a sleeping perspective, uh, by overthinking, you you just react overactivating that brain again, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. So you kind of go. It's kind of a vicious circle. You want to obviously find it that it suits you. But you don't want to overcomplicate it, then and then you're still in that same predicament that you can't sleep. Well, that's what we tell people. You know, dress, dress, dress it to success. Dress it in a way that works for you and makes you comfortable, but don't overdo it. You know, it's, it's that moderation thing. Make sure that you can still recognise the core of mindfulness and what it's there for, which is to help you sleep in this context or in work. A lot of people with very stressful jobs, we we say. We're going to teach you how to pause, how to have a mindful minute, just a minute. And in that minute, you're going to take, I take about four breaths a minute. Remarkably small number, but that's because I'm built like a whale. I'm going to take <laughs> less breaths. <clears throat> but most people, most regular sized human beings would take, you know, six or seven breaths in a minute, which is a surprisingly small number. And so how many people, you talk to people about this, I don't have time for this. And then you really think, are you seriously telling me you don't have time to take six breaths? And and most people would find that hard to rationalize. Yep, in my day, not even time to take six breaths. Well, my days are pretty packed. In between clients, I often have as little as five minutes between coaching clients. And in that five minutes, two of those minutes are, sent, uh, are spent just writing up a couple of notes because <clears throat> I don't take notes while clients are in the room. One of those minutes is spent um, in this mindful pause, just washing away what's happened previously and getting ready for what's about to happen. And and I think it makes me a better practitioner, a better person. And from that, John, what's the importance of obviously taking time to have your, well, quote-unquote, me time? I mean, it's hugely valuable. We, we've got a course called Anatomy of Wellbeing where we teach people about these, um, these various aspects of, of well-being. And in, included in that is the area of there's, uh, pause is one of them that we just talked about. The sleep is one of them that we talked about. Nutrition is one of them that we, talk, that we haven't talked about but is really key. <clears throat> and then there's, there's a couple of areas, rest and recuperation which are different. And recuperation, I think, is really key because people often think that the way you you kind of recover and recuperate is about getting onto your couch after work or after workouts as quickly as possible. But one of the things that athletes recognize, or at least have, have been taught over the years, is that actually it's not always about just crashing and stopping after activity. Sometimes it's about getting into a pool and just doing some gentle walking or some gentle swimming or, and then just lying there and trying to kind of focus on yourself. Sometimes it's about, you know, just stretching out uh, every once in a while. These things are actually recuperative and what it teaches you. um, And what I try and help people in the kind of more modern workplace understand is what that means is sometimes what helps you recuperate doesn't take no energy. It's not about crashing on the couch. It's actually about deciding to take a little walk after work 
just to walk around the block with a dog, without a dog, listen to some music. For some people, it's uh, going to the gym. For some people, it's yoga. For some people, it's um, a dinner party that they want to put on um, that really fills them with energy. It, it still costs them because obviously yeah. there's energy to make those, these things happen. But for, individu- for different individuals, it's different things. And so for me, I have to find that time in my schedule to make sure I do those things. Uh, you know, for me, it's a lot about being alone, about finding moments where I'm not uh, around other people. Um, but it's also about going for a walk. I increasingly enjoy walking from my office in central London. And I'm, I mean, actually where I live and where I work is both in central London, but on opposite bits of the center of London. And even when it uh, when it's raining, that walk through, I find it quite therapeutic. A, because I know that I've done something towards my steps for the day. But B, because actually it just gives you a chance to kind of fade away into the background. Listen to some music that I've been wanting to listen to all day. Um, I just really enjoy it. Um, the other day I, I went on uh, the BBC on the weekend on, on the radio. And it was absolutely pissing it down on Sunday morning at 7 o'clock when I had to, when I, when I had to get up to go down there. Um, and I, I walked down in the rain, and, and it really allowed me to just randomly think and make associations. And I went on air, and it was better for it because I, I looked through the – it was a paper review. And I looked through the paper, and my mind was so focused and clear for having that walk. Uh, and, and this is how you make sure that you're, you're best prepared for the world by giving yourself moments to recuperate that are not just doing nothing, but often choosing to do something carefully. And does it come down to it sometimes from an athlete's perspective? I think you can attest to it as well <coughs> that just sitting around sometimes after you've done exercise, you just make yourself worse the next day as opposed to, like you said, Go, going about and doing a little bit extra from a rec- recuperation thing just to get, well, the toxins out of your body? Uh, I think there's certainly, from an athletic point of view, it, there's there's great evidence out there that it's it's essential. Um, it's essential for people to, to, you know, not just, not do amazing amounts of high-intensity stuff and then stop because of the lactic acid in your body, because of any number of reasons, we should wind down. We should find ways to, to physically wind down. But I, actually, I think that is absolutely the same and consistent for our, our working lives. I think if your brain has been going full tilt all day, the last, thing you, the last thing that helps you is to try and come home and make that stop immediately. I mean, there's just no good part of a dead stop always does mechanical damage. It doesn't matter if you're talking about a car or or, or a train. Slamming on the brakes does damage. We've got to find a way to gently coast into quiet. And sometimes that takes some time. Uh, And so, you, you, you know, people shouldn't be surprised if they try and rush from work, come home, head straight into family time, partner time, whatever it is time. It shouldn't be surprised that their brain is still back at work. That or at ties, least in work mode. And that ties quite nicely into your um, approach on s- the social role between um, public perception and privacy, doesn't it? Because um, your work mode is obviously 
uh, what the public perceives you as to a certain extent and obviously your me time and your family time is to a certain extent obviously your private life it's invisible most for the most part i mean I, my my we're, we're quite i mean I, I have an advantage in that we have we have a staff of people and and we work quite hard to make sure that each of us actually has freedom in our uh, our kind of social time but that i work very hard to make sure that my extended family and family doesn't get in, involved because i'm a reasonably polarizing character and people either really like me or really hate me but that often you know you don't want to get your, your family dragged into that mm. um and the good part about living in a massive city is that, especially a massive city that doesn't care about the sport that I was originally famous for, um, <clears throat> is that you can get away with relative anonymity. You know, outside of this week when the NBA was in town, you know, there were people who came up to me this week and asked for my autograph, who, who I'm fairly convinced must have walked past me last week and had no clue who I was. So <clears throat> it's quite nice, actually. I just, um, I think everybody needs to find a way to have some part of their life that's private. Privacy is actually a, a mental health prerogative. We, 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 we see very clearly um, part of the consequence of prisons, for example, part of the indoctrination and the, 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 the challenges that come with prison and part of the punishment of prison is the abject lack of privacy, the fact that nothing you do is is done in without scrutiny. From going to the loo, to having a shower, to any conversation you have, nothing is private. It's part of the punishment of it. So you can imagine in a, in, in a real-world setting, uh, at least in a non-prison setting, um, if you, if everything you do is under scrutiny, it's going to have a negative impact on you. You need to have those moments when you can burp and nobody saw it. You need to have those moments when you, you can cry and nobody saw it. You need to have those moments where you can screw up and nobody saw it. Otherwise, you're just going to really, it's a pathway to mental health challenges, I think. <clears throat> and what are some kind of strategies to kind of have that disconnect between public perception and privacy without obviously shutting your front door. I mean, and so it's very difficult because, you know, obviously people like me, we, we court attention um, for our businesses. We, we, we try to make it, uh, we try to use our profile for lots of things, but charitable as well as business. So in some sense, we invite people into our lives. But, you know, I just think people have to be reasonable um, and, A, not expose too much of their lives. I mean, you, you, you will not probably, uh, I can't imagine anyway, not with my consent, find any pictures of me, you know, shirtless and gallivanting anywhere. Uh, and so there's, there's a limit to what I what I what I want people to see. And I want people to know that there, that there are bits of me that are private and not for your access. Um, but being able to control that is not always that easy, especially if you're an individual and not working with a, a group of people who help that to maintain that. Can be a challenge. And then kind of, kind of to move back, 
coming back on ourselves and talking about obviously that recuperation uh, techniques. You said also on that video yesterday uh, about um, when you wake up in the morning and reflecting on does it really hurt or doesn't it really hurt. Can you kind of explain what you mean by that? Oh. The, the audio's gone just there, John. Sorry, yeah. Sometimes... Um... I mean, almost everybody has something, has a voice in their head that tells them stuff. Uh, some people have got a very well-trained voice that is most certainly one of their own. And some people have their mum or dad's voice in their head or society's voice in their head or, or their school teacher's headmaster's voice in their head. Um, and that voice often tells us stuff that isn't hugely helpful or true. Uh, and so it used to be that I would wake up in the mornings and the first thing I would think, I mean, even as I just dawn into consciousness, the first thing I would think is, oh, my back hurts, my feet hurt, my body hurts. And then I'd get up and test it, right? And, and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, it does, it, I'm really sore. And I suddenly realized that I was coloring my entire perception of my day with that. And so... I just started to be more practical about it. And when that voice popped into my head that said, oh, yeah, you saw this morning, I just said, am I really? And then I got up and I'm like, actually, I feel pretty good. It could get sore. Well, it will. I'm an old man. It will get worse later on, um, probably, but it may not. But right now I feel pretty good. And all of a sudden your day starts in an entirely different way. And, and also I found that, if I woke up thinking my body hurts, there were never any days where I woke up and it didn't. When I wake up thinking, does my body hurt? There are days when I have a wonderful surprise revelation that for some reason the stars have aligned. And today, actually, it doesn't hurt at all. Today, I feel like I'm 20 again. And, and you don't get those if you allow the voice in your head to tell you what's what. If you're a little bit overweight and the voice in your, your head says you're fat and it'll never change, why bother? You put yourself behind the eight ball. If the voice in your head says you're, you're, you're a black kid from Hackney, nobody will ever hire you, what's the point in bothering with your O-levels or your GCSEs? Then it's going to put you behind the eight ball. You've got you've to rein in. You've got to control the voice in your head. And make it work for you. That, that, that's the key. There are far too many people fighting against us in the real world to have an imaginary voice in our head fighting against us too. And what are some of the strategies that you can do to overcome, obviously, those negative connotations and negative, well, to a certain extent, somewhat doubt um, and things of that nature? <laughs> Um, I mean, fundamentally, it's not that complex. It's First thing is that most people don't recognize when the voice in their head is speaking. They just think it's them. But there's very complicated psychology about the difference between the voice in your head and you. But you know it's a different entity, a different part of you, because you can talk to it. Um, so it, it's not you, per se, but it is a part of your mind at play. So, But most people don't even recognize um, 
even when they say it out loud, sometimes the voice in their head is said out loud. You often see this with, with young people from certain, who've had certain childhood experiences in terms of their education and background. Uh, and it extends all the way into work. Work. I'll, I'll see somebody and I'll talk to them about something. I had this with a client yesterday in coaching. And I pointed out something. And he said, oh, yes, I, yes, I should have spotted that. I'm so stupid. And that was the voice in his head being spoken out loud. I'm so stupid. Mm, no, you're a senior executive at a high-powered firm. You're not stupid by definition. And, and you're not so stupid. So that voice should be eviscerated. That voice should be destroyed for saying that because it's lying right to you. And if it'll lie about something so blatantly, obviously wrong, what else is it lying about? So the first step is to, is to make sure you're always listening for that voice. If you can call it a doubt, you can call it something else, but it's really you often a very clear, explicit kind of voice that says, oh, I shouldn't have tried that, or if you try that, you'll fail, or why would you bother, or there's no chance, or you can't do it, or that's too much for you, you don't deserve that. And you should recognize when that voice speaks, and then when it speaks, you should, you should demand the truth. You should look at what the statement is, you're too ugly to find a partner, and you should be really practical. Is that actually true? And if it's not actually true, and tr there is nobody who's listening to it, that it's actually true, that, that kind of statement, then you should say, that's a lie, and I'm going to listen for that voice and discount it from now on. The voice is, you know, we have another voice in our head that tells us not to jump off cliffs, right? It's mm. evolutionary wired into our head. So I'm not saying that everything is to be ignored. <clears throat> what I am saying is that most of us aren't in those critical situations all the time. Most of us are deciding whether we should ask our boss for a raise. And the voice in our, says, in our head doesn't say, it might be too soon. Let's think about if we need to wait a bit longer. That's a rational voice. No, the voice in the head that we want to ignore is the one that says, no, no, you're too stupid to get a raise. And that's the voice that you have to really kill but john does it come down to um obviously the self-doubt and things like that and you letting that voice or well, listening to it to some extent uh is a lot of people use that as an easy way out in some cases to not um finish a task no i mean i think that that same voice can help you not do a task by saying oh i never thought it was that important anyway Many people right now, you know, 17th of January, they'll be right at the point where their New Year's resolutions are starting to fade. And the voice in the head will say, oh, yeah, you gave it a good go. Never worry. No, don't worry about it. But it's still, even though that seems like it's supporting you, it's the same voice that's trying to, trying to hold you back. You know, it's the same voice that, that says, go out and don't do your homework. It's the same voice that says, you know, you're a proper man, so you should be disrespectful to the women in your life. It's, it's the same voice that, that is trying to set you back every time. Um, and in every case, it should be destroyed. It's not, it's not about doubt. That's normal. I doubt every day. I have worries every single day. But every time a worry pops into my head, I check it for accuracy. Is this real or is this imagined? Is it truthful? Is it useful? Is there something I can do about this to make it go away? 
And once it's gone through that filter of checks, if it doesn't pass the test, it's useless to me, and I'm getting rid of it. <clears throat> that's some that's some very good for uh, good advice there, John. Thank you. And then the last point I'd like to raise before we wrap it up. You talked about being adaptable. Um, I think how how I wrote, how I've written this down: adaptable, uh, as opposed to the strongest survivor. Like coming back to that point, that obviously Darwin talked about evolutionary that evolutionary um, quote about obviously the strongest would would survive. What do you mean by looking? Um, I'll re- rephrase this a little bit. What do you mean by being adaptable to against obviously being stronger, strongest, or stronger at something? Yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's it, it's it's evidently true from looking at uh, evolution that when the biggest catastrophes strike, right, when the most disastrous things happen, um, like when a meteor blew half the, you know, a third of the face of the earth off. The animals, the creatures that survived were the tiniest mammals because they could all of a sudden go from eating grass and seeds on top to eating shoots underneath. They could go from bounding around on top of the surface to living underground. They adapted and they adapted quickly because they didn't have months or years. They had days and weeks to find a new strategy to survive. Dinosaurs, less so. What dinosaurs are good for, what huge, great, unwieldy, non-adapting creatures are good for, is the status quo. If the environment's going to stay the same, these monsters will dominate. But a cursory look at our society right now, a cursory look at the world right now, tells us that one thing is consistent, and that consistent thing is change. One thing marks out, the word that they use in business is disruption. The idea that it's not just our environment that's disruptive, but now there are actual agents of disruption. So now our our meteors, our companies, like Uber, that is the meteor that's blown up the taxi business. And the only bits of the taxi business that will survive are the taxi bits of the business that can adapt and change. If you think that we're still going to be able to manage and that there's never going to be any competition and they're going to somehow disappear, none of that's true. And if if Uber did disappear, someone else will come with a new and different meteor to try and blow it up again. And, And so on every level, the day of the dinosaur, the day of the unwieldy, strong, unchanging, ironclad um, individual is over. <clears throat> now you can be big as, as you like, but if you're big and you can't adapt, you're doomed. Oh. So that's, that's, that, that, that answers my point. That, not my point. Answers my question quite well there, obviously, about being adapt it kind of it kind of i think it's what society's built on isn't it obviously that's of um and it's a little bit of a misconception that obviously the strongest will survive when you put it in that context okay to some degree you have to be uh ruthless to get in those positions but 
along the way you've had to have been adaptable. So it's a bit. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make any, I wouldn't make any claims about ruthless or not ruthless. There's nothing not ruthless about Uber. They're trying to destroy the taxi industry. Um, so these animals that survived the 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 meteor, they grew up into us. There's nothing not ruthless about us as a species. So this is this is this is not. I'm not so much saying that these people are soft and warm and fuzzy. Don't think of it that way. This is not about reptiles versus um, versus mammals. It's not about toothy and scaly versus you know nibbly and furry or something. This is this is simply about the fact that those who adapt will survive. So who else survived? Alligators survived. So it's not about only the the warm and fuzzy. This is about the evolutionary prerogative that as change happens ever more quickly, adaptation must happen ever more quickly. Otherwise, those who do not adapt will get eaten. So it's kind of using, in a sense, both, isn't it? Yeah. It's not about not being ruthless and vigilant and sharp. It's not about the fact that you have to be small It's a, or, or, or insignificant or hide. It's about the fact that when your environments change, when your circumstances change, when the people around you act as agents to influence you, you have to be able to adapt. And you don't all have to adapt in the same way, but you have to be able to adapt in order to survive. <coughs> and then the last question to wrap up the podcast, John. If you had to summarize this podcast into one sentence for people to take home, what would that be? Um, that's a hard question. We've covered a lot of stuff. So I, I will say this. the the To my mind... As a, and there's an individual responsibility is key, but that means recognizing where you are deficient and how you are going to grasp hold of the tools you need to be your best self. You know, at APS in our company, we call that the performance ecosystem, the high performance ecosystem. The idea that you look around yourself at what aspects of leadership, what aspects of of uh, uh, coaching, what aspects of well-being, what aspects of teaming, what aspects of motivation, what aspects of your understanding of inclusion do you need to work on in order to be your best self? And for individuals out there, that's how you adapt. That's how you grow. That's how you learn. That's how you survive. So once again, John, thanks for coming on the show and sharing that, uh, well, I'd say great insight into your psychological mind. I appreciate it. Thank you. If you wanted some bonus content, I have now set up a Facebook group where you can interact with both the guests and I. The name of this so-called group is Mindset Game. So why not come over and check it out for yourself? And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review in iTunes as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.